Good afternoon and uh, happy Christmas. Welcome to another edition of the Medical Sports Nutrition Podcast. Uh, it's me, your host, Dr. Andy Matheson, and we're going to be talking through some lipid articles today. Some of the stuff that I had looked at last time had really, again, just prompted me to think this is a hard topic to keep on top of. So I just looked at some of the bits and did a bit of catch-up reading on where things are going and trying to find a good article that breaks down this sort of state of play for current sort of tests rather than just the simple cholesterol. I think we're all comfortable with the idea that the certainly the NHS funded lipid tests aren't perfect there's more coming through um, if you work in the private sector you'll be offering a different set of tests that are more expensive and not included in is available in the NHS except in in secondary care clinics but and we all kind of need to get a bit more to grips with them, whether or not that's with our older athletes, especially and the most common one concerns with uh, some of the types of diet they may be trying. And in uh, as we said last time, we talked about how the changes in lipid uh, that we see with uh, some of the ketogenic diets um, are very specific and don't appear to be in the di- in the lipids that are associated with increased mortality. So the the first thing I came across was uh, really interesting, and it was it's about lipidomics. So this omics revolution, this idea that rather than just use uh, tests that just test one parameter, um, so the sort of fishing line analogy, if we just pick up one fish, um, but instead this omics idea of where we can throw out a net and just haul in whatever chemical changes are there and have that data, and then the the revolution has been being able to understand all that data and, and the, the maths to be able to, to make sense of it. <clears throat> so we've talked about proteinomics in the past, obviously the impact of omics on uh, sort of microbiome work. And this is looking at lipidomics, which <clears throat> have actually been around for quite a while. And this was the first article I'm looking at was in PLOS One. It was called Lipidomic Risk Scores Are Independent of Polygenic Risk Scores and Can Predict Incidence of Diabetes and Cardiovascular Disease in a Large Population Cohort. And this, whilst lipidomics have been around a while, this is the sort of thing we're sort of starting to see come out. So this was using the Malmo cohort, large sort of 9,000 patient cohort from the 90s with with good follow-up data. So they know what happened to these patients. And this is going back and taking, and again, rather than just measuring two or three lipid markers, looking at 184 lipid species or subspecies and trying to find a essentially a high-risk signature, a pattern, a fingerprint that seems to be more associated. And essentially, that's that's what they found. Um, so so that, that was the initial interesting thing. It, it, it worth, worth the read. Um, it, it does have a nice introduction to the idea of, of, of lipidomics and the omic sciences, um, and it, it, it takes it on from there. Um, the bit I actually really liked, and other than the fact it's interesting and they're starting to, to develop this lipidomics model, was they talked a lot about why 
we should be interested in this. In it's and this is the key for me. It's a move away from this idea of cholesterol pottering around our bloodstream into our liver, out and then lying in our arteries. What they say they're looking at, and what we actually look at with lipids, is it's a reflection of what's going on in all the cell membranes. So it's not this very simplified idea of plug the fat pl- clogging up your plug holes in your arteries. A bit like when you pour fat down the cooker, and which is which is often what we've kind of sold that kind of idea of oh yeah you you when you when you're cooking with fat you don't pour it down your sink because it's going to clog your sink when it hardens. That's that's essentially the image we sell to 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 people um, to try and persuade them why eating eating high fat diets is bad, and we've done that for years, and uh, and yeah clearly it's, it's nonsense. But what actually are we looking at with lipids? And it's all. It's always been really hard to get a head around it in, in this idea that actually they're nothing to do with, well, not nothing to do with, but it, we're primarily we're not interested in what's going on there. It's to do with what's going on in the cell membranes. So I, I thought that description in this article was, was quite a game changer for me and, and certainly will move me away from how I have been thinking about the lipid articles I've been reading onto a, no, this is a reflection of what's going on in the body, in the cell membranes of the body. Um, Which I suppose then goes on to the the next article I found on it, another lipidomics one. And it was, lipidomic profiling identifies signatures of metabolic risk. Um, And it was uh, in e-biomedicine, one of the Lancet ones, the first author, Yin, last officer, Ibanez. Um, and it was actually published in 2019, but the 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 next step from okay, it's not actually it's reflecting what's going on in cell membranes is well okay if it's reflecting what's going on in cell membranes presumably it could these omics and these fingerprints could reflect quite a lot of changes in the body if you can just understand the vast amount of data that you'd have to break down. And this one was looking at 154 lipid species in um, some about seven, just under 700 patients from the Framingham, Framingham Heart Study, which uh, we were sort of doctors were all very familiar with from, from over the years of, of calculating our, our lipid risks and Q risks and all that. Um, and what they found was 39 lipids were associated with obesity, eight with dysglycemia, um, and four lipids were associated with changes in BMI. So they haven't, they didn't quite get on to we can then use this. Well, essentially what they summarised was this is going to develop into a way of identifying biological pathways of risk. And again, back to this idea that we're not so interested in the, the lipid levels in the blood. It's these pathways and changes that they are going to identify. So, uh, and then the next jump onto that, and, and the one where you think, okay, this this sounds incredible. Like, okay, this is this is this is why this is actually a reflection of what's going on in the body. So, it's lipidomic profiling of human serum enables detection of pancreatic cancer. Uh, first author Wara, last author Halasapek, and it was published in Nature Communications. Um, so pancreatic cancer, um, fascinating cancer, one of the ones I focused a lot with with some of the microbiome work on cancer, terrible prognosis, always picked up late, um, classically for us doctors, someone going yellow with no pain, something's blocking the bile duct, it's not going to end well, and we we always sort of advise patients this, this is 
unfortunately, we're going to have picked this up late because we always do. Um, the standard marker as, as GEPs that you might use or the marker you use to see how your cancer is doing is called a CA199. In this lipidomic profile, this lipidomic fingerprint, when looking at 830 samples um, and identifying sort of spe specific changes within those uh, lipid moieties, they found that the sensitivity and specificity to diagnose pancreatic cancer was over 90%, which is better than the screening tool we use, which I think we, most of us know isn't that, sen isn't that specific. Um, so, yeah, really interesting stuff there. This idea that um, as far as as far as lipids goes, yes, obviously cholesterol is wildly simple. Um, models and our descriptions we use are wildly simple. But actually, for me, there's this learning point that it's not that we are just measuring the wrong one, and it's just we need to do an expensive test. It's that we're probably not understanding what we're measuring. And in five years' time, as with a lot of this omic stuff, it's this is very future future answers for patients in five years time ten years time we'll be looking at these fingerprints and thinking of them as a reflection of what's going on in the cells in the cell membranes rather than the, these other ideas we've used so the next study uh with the next article was from 2020 and this was actually the one that i had been trying to find when i was doing a bit of reading round. it was it's European Journal of Cardiology assessing atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease risk with advanced lipid testing, state of the science. First officer German, last officer Shapiro. Um, and this was, a, this was the nice one. This was the one that just broke down, for me, the different tests that are kind of available and where, where they might fit in, where I ought to be thinking um, about using them. Uh, and which ones are, are useful and have good evidence at the moment and which might not. And, and a lot of the, and I recommend just going and reading it, I won't run through it all. Um, a lot of the names will sound familiar and some of them weren't too familiar for me. ApoB is the one that I've, I've been hearing a lot and it was good to see some of the breakdown for, for where that fits in. Um, and, and how it compares to to some of the other more commonly used markers, NHDL-C, um, and why that's different from ApoB and why where that might be used. Um, lipoprotein A, I wasn't so much aware of. It's sort of a non-functional mimic of uh, plasmin plasminogen, um, and actually how well it correlated. Um, with valve and cardiovascular disease, and the fact that you only need to measure it once because that's it's a bit like the um, uh, ApoE4 genetics test. This is one you either have it or you don't, and then if you do, you know you're at high risk, and if you don't, you're not. So, so again, if you if someone's wanting to say, what risks do I have for this, this, and this? This this uh, this has a, a use in in that. Um, and then they went on to APOA1 and HDLP and talked through some of the studies that have been used there and, and where they fitted in, mostly in combination, um, for example, APOA1 in combination with APOB in, in, in one study and the HDLP in the Jupiter study. So I have to say I'm far more confident. What would it change for me? Actually, I'd be more confident looking at the results um, if I'm working in in a private clinic uh, working through tests um, and knowing what I expect from the lab and and where where these blood tests fit in so if you've got someone saying I don't 
I haven't just gone for a sort of standard NHS one. I want a proper workup. And you just need something to refer to to get an idea of where these markers fit in. This, this was perfect. So the next study, so that's it for lipids. We're moving away. Again, something still on lipids, and uh, I thought I'd include it today because I thought it was very interesting. It was a Journal of American College of Cardiology letter, um, outcome of metabolic surgery in elderly obese population. So not so much our sports population, but um, if you're like me, you will probably be seeing more and more people that have had bariatric surgery in 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 trying to understand what, what support they need from a nutrition side, what blood tests they may still need. Often people seem to have had to go overseas to get it. And I suppose this just this just backs up my frustration that people are having to go overseas for something that that is wildly effective. And, and this was a, um, a cohort of 189,000, four-year follow-up, um, and just looking at the um, impact of... Uh, bariatric surgery um, and so it was 94,000 patients matched um, to, to get the total number so large cohorts so really useful study it was using the Medicare uh, system so again a bit reliant on how that's that's inputted um, and just huge benefits seen in bariatric surgery especially in patients who are over 65 or older um, with uh, lower risks of mortality, heart failure, and MI, and up to a forty percent reduction in some cases. Which, uh, again, if 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 you've just got someone who's struggling with weight, it's always been this view of bariatric surgery that it's something that uh, that, that I don't know. It's a kind of it's where patients have failed, uh, and we we very much need to move away from that and just see it as a tool in the toolbox. We know the genetics of obesity mean that some people won't be able to lose the weight. Why would we not push them towards surgery when it is really effective? Um, but I think for the for the moment, certainly in the UK, with the state of uh, state of waiting lists being what they are, bariatric surgery is going to be pushed right down to the bottom, um, which is is very disappointing for us all. Um, Another change now, uh, looking at ketogenic diets, and whenever we're giving talks on ketogenic diets, we talk about where, where it comes from and where the data is used and where, where we sometimes see our hospital colleagues using it. And, and often that's in things to do with um, neuroprotection, uh, difficult to control epilepsy, um, especially in children, etc., etc. Uh, and this was another one. There's been some data coming out on MS. Um, and so, again, where, where does this fit in? You may have patients with MS wanting advice on the, their nutrition and maintaining their function. Um, or it may just be that you, you want to use this as an example of how how mainstream ketogenic diets are going and how they clearly do have very specific benefits to um, to certain conditions. And so this is called Phase 2 Study of Ketogenic Diets in Relapsing MS, Safety, Tolerability and Potential Clinical Benefits, uh, 65 patients, and just a fantastic improvement in things such as fatigue, walking speed. Uh, you always come back to, if this was a drug everyone would want to be on it. It's not a drug. Big Pharma can't sell it. Um, and so it stumbles along. But uh, hopefully, given that this is the phase two, there'll be a phase three and and um, uh, good good for uh, Brenton uh, and Goldman and all the rest. Um, it's University of Virginia that are doing it for, for pushing this forward. And what I imagine is pretty challenging because 
<clears throat> there's a lot of money in MS drugs and uh, people won't want uh, their researchers focusing on something that can make them uh, money. Um, and the final article was uh, uh, on testosterone. Uh, this was just looking at the testosterone in the blood test and we know it's not a great blood test and we know there's a lot of disputes certainly in the UK over where the value should be um, and it's a little bit reminds us all of um, thyroid blood tests and there's always disputes on what the correct blood tests are and, and inevitably the, the test that gets done is the cheapest one or the one the labs can do cheapest which isn't necessarily mean it's the worst blood test and maybe the one that there's just most efficient with but uh, certainly for the, this article suggesting that maybe um, it's not the right one for us to be doing or certainly not on its own so it's called erectile dysfunction predicts mortality in middle-aged and older men independent of their sex steroid status uh, and the bit that I found was interesting was that uh, they did total testosterone but free testosterone as well and that was the one that was associated with um, uh, with the mortality changes so higher mortality risk was found with the free testosterone but not with the um, normal testosterone and it makes you just think okay maybe some of these articles in the past where we just looked at total testosterone have not shown the changes or the significance that we would have expected because they're not measuring the right thing. So uh, that's it today. I um, hope you've enjoyed it. And not much sports stuff on there, much more on the general medical um, bit and in, uh, in our older athletes. Um, hope you've had a super Christmas. Have a lovely new year and I'll uh, get back to you soon.